0: Welcome. You're listening to another episode of AML Conversations, where we sit down with some of the brightest minds in the financial industry to explore topical matters around financial crime and compliance. We hope you enjoy this discussion, and please be sure to subscribe for more.
1: Jamal, how are you doing today?
0: Good, John. How are you?
1: I'm good. Hey, thanks so much for taking some time uh, to chat with me. I know we've tried to do this in the past, and uh, certainly ever since you left... Vincent to go in the uh, private sector. We've had some opportunities, certainly pre COVID and then most recently to catch up, but I thought this would be a great opportunity to uh, get your take on a bunch of things that are going on in the AML CTF world. And maybe just start with you're you're now at Clifford Chance's counsel um, in the America's litigation and dispute resolution practice. Tell us a little bit about, I know it's a global firm, but, uh, just in general, sort of your role and responsibilities there, and uh, your, your client needs uh, high level
0: uh sure well um, it's uh, I'm still in my first year here, so i'm I'm figuring some things out, but it's all going well and it, it, it's not a surprise. I'm focusing on AML issues, uh, also quite a bit of sanctions work as well, given everything that's going on of late. And I think um, the, the main focus is actually, you know, talking to existing clients and new clients about uh, what they should be thinking about with respect to, to AML in terms of their compliance programs and some of the risks that are out there. And you know, there's a lot swirling out there now in terms of new regulations, new requirements, and a new way of thinking about things, um, particularly with the AMLA statute. Um, so, I'm, I'm involved in a lot of conversations that way and one thing that I think is becoming a real focus, even though there's still work to be done on FinCEN's regulations in connection you know, with uh, the federal functional regulators, is this notion of an effective program and I guess given my experience both in private sector before coming to government and then private government work and then back in the private sector there's a lot of discussion in terms of what effectiveness can actually mean right. and I think for financial institutions and, and others to be a little bit more proactive about that they have an opportunity to kind of define what effectiveness is and, t- and talk to regulators about that as opposed to just waiting to hear you know what everybody says effectiveness is so I actually feel like it's a really good opportunity to be working in this space and uh, of course focusing on uh, new technologies new payment methods uh, payment processors uh, cryptocurrency all, all sorts of stuff and I'm I'm really enjoying it I'm really enjoying um, returning to the private sector and yeah, While I miss, I, I very much valued my public service career. Um, 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 I, I miss it in some ways, but I'm really looking forward right, to right. All, all of the issues on, on the private sector side, too.
1: Well, I want to come back to effectiveness and, and some of the issues that we have in, this, in, in the U.S. regarding sort of our infrastructure. But let me let me go back in time a bit. You spent a number of years in various roles at the Treasury Department, first at OFAC. Uh, You've been at FinCEN. You were also the first uh, uh, chief data officer. I want to talk a little bit about that. But uh, back when you were at OFAC, um, you know, this was post-Patriot Act, only a couple years after. What I remember at the time from uh, OFAC is, number one, sanctions, as we know, covers everybody. It's not Mm -hmm. just a financial institution uh, regulation or oversight. It covers everybody. But also, I know that from working with at the time, members of the uh, Bankers Association, they were constantly looking for sort of direction on what to do, whether they were a big, smaller, mid-sized bank. And not because OFAC refused to, but certainly the way it was set up, it really wasn't wired to give compliance direction. That seems to have changed a little bit with some of the recent uh, programs and policy uh, guidance that's come out. So, you know, Give, give us your sense now, OFAC now versus then. Like I said, I'm not blaming OFAC, but it seemed at the time it, it, that wasn't their job. Their job wasn't to help you try to figure out what to put together. But I think over time they recognized that uh, the effectiveness, using that word again, of an institution's response could be enhanced if you could get some direction, uh, some guidance, uh, you know, uh, on, on things that, that would show a support for a program and policy, if that makes any sense.
0: Yeah, it's a really good question. And I, I love that you've asked it and there's been an evolution. Um, and I'll, I'll try to break it down a, a little bit. Um, when I first joined OFAC, I, I actually had come from the private sector. I was there for quite a while. So I wasn't one of those folks who was in in government you know, from the very beginning and, and only in government. Right. Um, but you know, at that time, you know, everything was about you know, OFAC might have been reticent with respect to providing any kind of guidance, because you know, it's strict liability. And within the sanctions context, and within the foreign policy aspects of it, you know, I remember as a lawyer focusing on making sure that the administration had maximum flexibility to do what it needed to do. Um, you know, there, and, and sometimes you couldn't be quite precise to tell people exactly what a sanctions program was, or what right. it covered, or what it didn't cover, because you, you didn't know what you might have to anticipate down the road. So there was a certain amount of reticence there, and there was always this notion of you know, it is, it's based on strict liability, but over the time, you know, sanctions themselves have become more nuanced. You've gone from the country programs to list-based programs, and now you've got the complications of specific sector focus. And, you know, with the complexity of the sanctions themselves, you absolutely have to provide more guidance and provide some more engagement with industry and recognize that even though it is a strict liability system, you, the, the goal is not to punish everybody. Right. The goal is actually compliance. And so uh, I, I will say, I think that OFAC picked up on some of the things that were going on in the AML space, you know, with you know, FinCEN being a sister organization, to think a little bit more about how they could, you know, even though it was strict liability, model some of the things that existed with respect to risk-based approaches to compliance and and talk about that and i think that that's what you're seeing now i will say when i was at ofac and i didn't understand this at the time and i'm glad that it has changed you know ofac ofac and fincen were kind of like dirty words to one another <laughs> you, know, you know within the treasury department you had people who basically said you can't talk about them in the same breath because people will get confused Right. and and i always felt well if you don't talk about them at the same time because of the ways in which compliance professionals might be you're know, working with it, with reality you know, within a, within a particular financial institution it's that's where it gets confusing and so i was one of those people who moved from one part of treasury to another and i wasn't the only one but i think over time you've seen greater cooperation between the two organizations and this no them being Dirty words to another to one another and not being able to reference OFAC in a FinCEN document or FinCEN in an OFAC document. Yeah, we're way past that. And I think that everybody is better off as a result. That's yeah, just you know,
1: that's just one area of evolution. Yeah. Yeah. What's interesting about that is when I was at the Bankers Association when we Uh, put together, uh, we had, it had been in place for many years, the ABA, ABA Money Learning Conference Mm -hmm. that I was running at the time. We had a hard time getting OFAC to even participate because they would make the case. We're not, we're not AML because we understood that, but we recognized that they were, if not joined at the hip, the people that had AML responsibilities had sanctions responsibilities in a lot of banks. I mean, that was definitely the case. So that was definitely good. So you switched from there, as you said, to FinCEN. Um, certainly, post, immediately post-Patriot Act, there was a whole series of regulations and guidance. Uh, I don't say it culminated be, with the FFIEC exam manual, but there was definitely a, a crying need for more transparency, even though uh, the uh, banking agencies in FinCEN were fairly transparent. Uh, so unlike the SEC, they definitely would give out uh, s- some directions, but the manual came out. I think 2005 is what I remember, Mm -hmm. and at the time was definitely welcomed by the industry and practitioners because, hey, now we have, even though there were some, there was also some manuals that were public before that, but here we have in one place, you can kind of, you can search it, you can go through it, you sort of figure things out, here's what the examiners are looking for, and what I found, and maybe this sort of jumps way ahead, but I still want to go back to your FinCEN career. But it gets to the point where in 2022, there's actually criticism of the manual as something that examiners and the banking agencies sort of defaulted to. But at the time, what I remember, 2005, we really were comforted to some degree. All oh, right, Now we know sort of the scope, the planning that happens when you're checking out uh, under the guise of risk-based or what have you, what the regulations require and all that. So for at least for a number of years, it was seen as a... As a positive. So when you were at FinCEN at the time, um, sort of a roundabout way of getting to this question, I've always been curious about the relationship that FinCEN had with the banking regulators. It seems that it's better now, not that it was problematic before, but I always got the sense as a practitioner that there wasn't as much dialogue as there needed to be. I'm not asking for a critique of the banking agencies, but like OFAC and FinCEN that eventually got together, what was your sense at the time? And do you think it's improved now since the banking agencies have one part of AML that they have to look at, policies and procedures, FinCEN does the regs and, and uh, all the other part, uh, very, very long-winded way of getting to the point. Is there connections now that perhaps there wasn't, say, 10, 15 years ago?
0: Um. Yeah, yeah, I mean, uh, you yeah. know, it's Friday. I have a policy of being up front on Friday, so I'm just going <laughs> to you know, uh, tell it the way that I see it. I mean, one of the one of the most interesting aspects of the job uh, that I had at FinCEN was and, and, the, and the thing that I actually enjoyed the most was working with fellow regulators because it's mm-hmm. challenging. Um, you, you, you go back a little bit further and you have to realize that the dynamic in which FinCEN was created, it was created. You know, in part because somebody was saying, "Well, law enforcement and regulators, you know, we want somebody else to kind of step into this space and uh, help fix it." And to the extent that you know, bank examiners, you know, uh, you know, regulators had been working with industry and law enforcement before with respect to criminal referral forms and things like that, you know, it was a system that needed improvement. And you know, so FinCEN was kind of always identified. You know, for for many years, is is the upstart trying to trying to enter into this space, and I do think that that created some concerns for both law enforcement and the regulators. So right. there's a certain amount of tension, but you know, over the course of time, I think that you know the relationships improved, and and they have struck. You know, I, I feel like when I was there, we really were working on those relationships and improving them. Um, uh, yeah, I always wanted to think about how the regulators were perceiving FinCEN and and what it was doing, and I think that um, over the course of time, they were more willing to hear about FinCEN's concerns and you know the i i think that the creation of the manual it was it was a collaborative exercise right um i was actually at ofac during the drafting of it and then i switched to fincen uh during the release of it and it was it was a collaborative exercise i think it it you know there are periods where there's been a little bit more co- the the collaboration ebbs and flows but i do i feel very confident right now that there are strong relationships among them, and they challenge each other. And that's the way it should be. I mean, it's not like everybody's going to agree on everything at all points. But I feel like um, there's definitely more support from within the the federal functional regulators that recognizes the special role that FinCEN has and that FinCEN needs to lead. That is very clear um, now. And at the same time, you know, the regulators have their space as well. So right. I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing how some of this latest round of rulemaking comes out. And I believe that there's a decent amount of interagency coordination on stuff, at, 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 better than it's been before. Um, and now everybody's waiting to see the results of that you know, as um, some proposed rules come out.
1: Right. Yeah, I, I, w- I want to get to that. Um, and I want to ask you about being the chief data officer mm-hmm. that that 's a good that 's a good jumping off point for one particular regulation that i 'm very curious about and i 'm sure your clients are and that 's the priorities so you mm-hmm. know when i you know i I look at it maybe differently than others. I thought that with the release of the priorities confirmed in my mind what you, know, you and I and others that have been in this space would have developed so you know the eight priorities i don 't look at it as it They're so broad, they're not helpful. No, I look at it another way. I think this proves that we in the public and private sectors knew that these were priorities and it confirmed that. So that's the good news. The challenge, and maybe not bad news, is FinCEN has been very clear, and I think Congress was as well in their direction to FinCEN, that when the regulations come out, not all priorities are the same. Different institutions have different risks levels or risk categories, right? So I think the big questions for your clients and for our clients, frankly, is when the reg comes out, what are going to be the obligations of banks and fintechs and other financial service providers uh, in terms of the priorities? They're going to have to have something for all eight? Are they going to, it's, Is it going to depend? Is it going to be a risk assessment? So high level, I know you don't know what it's going to look like, but you've been following it as I have. What's, what's your take and what, you know, I've seen I've sat through panels and moderated panels. Where we've talked about the priorities, which at this point kind of silly because they're not out yet, even though we know what the priorities are. We know what the regs are. But when your client calls you and says, hey, Jamal, what should I do to prepare for this? What's your educated guess on what this could look like?
0: Yeah, it's it's really good. And I alluded to the fact that I think that that's I'm I'm spending more and more time talking a little bit about this, in part because, you know, well, you can't wait forever for the regulations. Right. Um, I think I look at the priorities, and I look at essentially the effectiveness initiative. I mean, these things go hand in hand. Right. And what I tell institutions is that, um, you know, because these things are now put down on paper, you know, the priorities themselves, and you know, yes, they are broad, but not everything is mentioned. And within the priorities, you know, there there will be different different things that are specifically mentioned you know, in FinCEN's list and other things that are not. Look, like, for example, marijuana, you know, right. drugs, you know, drug trafficking to be a priority. There's no specific mention of marijuana and that's consistent with some of the things that have happened in the past. So now your know, financial institutions can take some of this and thinking about how they are they're going to be tasked with having effective programs and the regulators and examiners are going to be looking for effectiveness. I think these two things provide, um, I'm just gonna say ammunition for financial institutions to engage in in, in conversations both with FinCEN and with their examiners and with law enforcement to say the way we see it, if we do A, A, B, and C, this is how we're going to be effective in providing information to, um, to law enforcement and regulators. This is how we're going to be effective in being uh, resilient to money laundering. Um, and you know, th- I, I think that they're in a better position to have those conversations now based on AMLA, based on you know, the creation of priorities than they might have been in the past. And so as I talk to folks, I say, We'll begin preparing for those conversations. You know, you want to be in a situation where you have been able to say, "Listen, you know, examiner, we have really thought about this. We've thought about where we are, what our risks are, what our business model is, how it might compare with others, where we're situated, et cetera, et cetera." And based on all of that, we actually feel that it makes more sense for us to do this rather than that. Right. And that, and and I do think that there's. I really hope that when we see the regulations um, and the implementation of those regulations, there's going to be a recognition that those conversations are completely appropriate as opposed to institutions just waiting for, you are know, waiting for direction. I think that they get to lead a little bit more
1: now. That would really make sense. And, you know, we, as you said, we could, we could talk long time about sort of the AML infrastructure in the states what i call the three-legged stool right it's it's uh the public it's the private sector it's of course law enforcement and the regulators and they don't have the same goals you know and i think this is what this is a key question about the priorities because you know at the end of the day my view is the bank secrecy act is designed to get information in the hands of law enforcement as quickly and efficiently as possible the regulators, that's, that's not their role. Their role is policies, procedures, as you said, effectiveness, sort of kicking the tires. And sometimes that leads to uh, what I would characterize as not enforcement actions because those happen against institutions that have made mistakes. They're clear, that's not it. But criticisms that seem a little bit minor and administrative. So I think, you know, if we could get to a place where we, we believe that what we were and what your clients are spending time on is the value of the information uh, tunnel if you will mm-hmm. that's that's the way to do this right and i don't know if we'll ever get there but you know i think that's that's an important piece and so related to that is the use of information and so mm-hmm. right before you left uh, FinCEN, uh right before but uh, toward the end of your time there you were named the, the chief data officer for treasury uh, obviously data is that that's so essential right whether it's sar data you know CTR, whatever it is, the data that gets utilized by our partners uh, and by the banks to make and the and the financial service companies to make sense of what is suspicious, what is unique, that sort of thing. What was the broad-based role of the chief data officer, and what are some of the things you learned while you held that position?
0: Uh, I, you know, I'm glad that you've asked because it's uh, it was a really great opportunity. First, I did it in part because you know there. Uh, yeah, you know, as I was thinking about going to the private sector, you know, you you can avoid conflicts of interest as a regulator if you switch if you if you switch your function a little bit. And so, um, the Evidence Act, uh, you, know, is, it, it, you know, came out a, a couple of years earlier. And under the Evidence Act, every agency within Treasury, I'm sorry, every agency within government had to identify a chief data officer, uh, you know, who is going to focus on how data was going to be better used, better stored, protected, you know, used uh, for the purposes of more effective decision making and policy making. And, and um, Treasury didn't have somebody in that role. They were doing it by committee. And so I mean, you know, for me, I just said, hey, you know, I-, I do quite a bit of this you know, within the context of FinCEN Sure. How about I step into this role and and help set up the office, which is what I did. And um, I do think that you know, CDOs, Chief Data Officers, are you're you're going to see them playing a, a bigger role across government and within C suites, um, and you know, compliance, you know, anti-money laundering, sanctions, you know, other compliance issues everything is now being driven by data and you know how you how you identify risks how you make decisions with respect to your procedures and policy and how you how you quantify the effectiveness of them you know all of it is uh, focused on you know, the, the, the collection of information and data that you can that you can use so um, one of the best aspects of that job is that I was introduced to, to a community of chief data Cross government, uh, working collectively, uh, you know, uh, on these issues. And um, now, you know, in my current role, uh, you know, in addition to focusing on AML issues, um, I've actually been asked by a couple of financial institutions to talk about that CDO mm-hmm. role and to talk about uh, not not just compliance culture, but data cultures, you know, within an organization, and making sure that the two of those are are linked up. I've, I remember talking to somebody, uh, you know, a, a client, and I said, what's, what's bothering you? I said, well, what's bothering right now is that I can't get my IT people to understand exactly what I need. But it wasn't necessarily just the IT. It, it got down to you know, the, the data issues. And I said, well, who is your chief data officer? And they said, well, actually, it's not really clear who that is. And I said, well, that's, that's your issue. So I think that you're going to see more of these things coming together, and it's uh, uh, the the opportunities with respect to use of data, data analytics in combination with uh, compliance issues, particularly in the AML and sanctioned space. It just it's um, it I think it's th- there's a lot of neat things that are going on, and I think that it's attracting you know some really uh, great professionals now. So I'm I'm excited about it.
1: Oh, that makes sense. I I got a couple more for you. One is, and and we could spend a whole uh, hour on on this one. So just want to get your initial take, Um, you know, with the focus on digital assets and crypto, all aspects of virtual currency, obviously, besides the fact that they're sort of tanking in in the market this particular week, forget that for now, the investment part of it, but just in general, in terms of compliance, um, I, you know, high level, with fintech firms, with uh, currency, ex- uh, I mean, with crypto uh, exchanges, all, all those sorts of things, what's the biggest challenge for government to regulate? And I know the obvious answer is, you know, that you don't, you don't want to be disruptive to the point where you don't allow innovation. So we get that. But I, I, would, I would imagine it's hard to find, quote, experts, unquote, to understand how these things work. So, so the early days of MSBs were the same way, right? Traditional banking, you sort of figure that out, right? Even mm-hmm. though they have, they can have exotic products. But in this space, in terms of law enforcement oversight, or regulatory oversight, you did some of that at FinCEN. Now you're advising firms. What are some of the biggest things that we don't understand about that space? And are you confident that at some point we're going to get our arms around this and and have it sort of be a... Uh, a rational regulatory area as opposed to, you know, uh, just disruptive to the point that innovation suffers? You know, again, I know we could talk about this for a long time, but just your sort of initial reaction to this.
0: I I, I think we, you know, we're getting to the right space. I mean, you know, there, there are fits and starts. And um, I think right now one of the biggest challenges is the fact that, for a variety of good reasons. We have a number of regulators in the United States that focus on different aspects of the financial sector and different aspects of the economy generally. Um, it's a huge economy and you know we don't have like an Uber regulator responsible for everything. Right. So a, a challenge right now for the US government in particular is that it's the largest economy you know, it's also you know, one of the most innovative. Um, and you know, because of that, we do have a certain amount of bifurcation in our regulatory systems, yes. state and federal as well. Uh, so, but, but for them to kind of come together and figure out who is going to do what and what makes sense in a space where things just continue to evolve really quickly, is, it's a big challenge government but you know the the new executive order essentially recognizes that and says you know we need to have time frames we need to have your interagency cooperation to focus on this it doesn't solve everything overnight and congress itself is challenged in terms of coming up with more definitive uh legislation to say precisely who's going to do what or how things might be covered so in the interim everybody's scrambling to do the best that they can. Um, I think that uh, what, what helps is that regulators and law enforcement are very interested in learning about what's going on, developing the skills, understanding you know, all the possibilities with respect to uh, blockchain, blockchain analytics and some of the different tools that are out there. I'll just right. go back to the very beginning you know, when it was first emerging you know, there were some people who said, well, gosh, you can't get transparency here, regulate it out of existence, make it illegal. Right. And um, that is not what Treasury did, even though there may have been, you know, some discussions within Treasury or within the interagency community about that. The, 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 and, and FinCEN leading the way on this says, no, you know, there's innovation here that we can take advantage of. There may be ways in which these developments lead to greater transparency with respect to financial transactions in the future than than you've got with cash. Anything that's digital, you know, arguably is going to be easier to trace than just cash or barter or, or you know, or trade-based money laundering. Right. So, um, I I think that that's recognized, and I do think that um, the technology, uh, you know, that that exists with respect to movement of funds, you know. Uh, you know, identification of people, um, you know, securing contracts or even title, you know, there's all sorts of opportunity in the fintech space here that we'll be taking advantage of, but people do have to be patient with each other. Government has to be patient with industry, industry has to be patient with government. And right now, people should be focusing on the worst of the worst actors in terms of who's, who's abusing things and recognizing that those that are not the worst of the worst are actually working to try to comply. Um, so uh, I, I, that's a, that's a long sure. way of telling. Yeah, I, I feel actually fairly optimistic, you know, with respect to this, but um, I, everybody says, you know, Jamal, you're the eternal
1: optimist. And I don't <laughs> mind, the, I don't mind being the eternal. Well, optimist. somebody needs to be, especially in this environment that we're in. I'll get you out of here on this. Um, I love to ask, folks that have spent a good portion of their careers in the uh, public sector and have moved to the private sector, sort of what, what's been the big change? Other than the obvious, obviously, you, if you go to a place that serves clients, you, know, um, that's, you have to provide advice and counsel, you're not regulating, you're not enforcing. So I get that, but from your perspective, I know it's been a fairly short time, but you did spend some time in the, in the uh, private sector before you entered the government. What's been the biggest, uh, if, if not change, things that perhaps were eye-opening to you? You probably knew about them because you work closely with those that you regulated and talked to them, but now that you're in a firm, talking to clients, uh, besides the obvious that they're trying to figure out what they need to prepare for, what's been the biggest uh, change and or challenge for you?
0: Um, for me personally, I think uh, because of, my private sector days before government, and then the way I approach things within government in, in terms of, and, and being at FinCEN, you know, being open to hear about the concerns of industry and trying to work on things collaboratively, it's not a huge change. I mean, you know, when I, was in, when I was in FinCEN, I was focused on trying to make sure that you know, industry understood the rules and was able to uh, comply and you know, you know, be effective in terms of providing the information that government needed. I'm still doing the same thing now. But one huge change is that when you're in government in this space, you know, anti-money laundering, countering the terrorist financing, saying national security issues, um, the problems that you're solving are... The, the whole world's problems they're right. huge issues and now that i am in the private sector um, yes i'm concerned about those things but i'm not a policymaker anymore and so i'm focused on i'm focused on the, the client's problems and um and and those are it, it, it's it's important work and things like that but i would tell anybody you know, who's listening to this don't underestimate the enormity of the work that the government officials have in this space and to know that those world problems are on their shoulders every day, every minute. And when I went to the private sector, what surprised, I, I, it, it kind of caught me off guard was that that weight was not on me anymore. Right. And while I appreciated it while I was in government, you know, that it was always there, I just want people to appreciate just how hard those jobs are and um, I, not your private sector jobs are hard too. and you know, you've got the weight of the government coming down on you with respect to compliance, but it's a different feel and um, uh, it, it, it's, it's a different feel. I think you, know, I, I like to state that because I feel like each has to appreciate you know, the what other, the other does. Yeah,
1: that makes sense. Well. Uh, Jamal Ahinde, counsel uh, for Clifford Chance, and it's America's Litigation and Dispute Resolution Practice, uh, former FinCEN Associate Director, Olfak uh Associate Director, Deputy Director at FinCEN. Thank you so much for your time today, your insight, uh, super helpful uh, to our community. And, uh, you know, th- th- thanks, thanks again, and good luck down the road.
0: Thanks, John. Uh, always a pleasure to talk with you. Uh, you. I hope you know how much I enjoy it. So um, have a good weekend and happy Friday. <laughs>
1: yeah, happy Friday. Take care, man. Talk to you soon. Right. Yep. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks
0: for listening to another episode of AML Conversations brought to you by AML RightSource. To make sure you're staying up to date with what's going on in the industry, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast to get the latest episode.